0: Star Trek Picard, Episode 1, Remembrance, is over. But we're just getting started here at Post Show Recaps. My name is Jessica Leese and I am really, really excited to be bringing you a little recap and breakdown of everything that has happened in this very busy, very action-packed first episode of the latest Star Trek spinoff. But before we get to all of that, I want to introduce... The man whose pupils always dilate when he's talking about Star Trek. Mr. Mike Bloom. Hello, Mike.
1: Jess, I'm so angry with myself that I wasted my evil twin reference on the very first podcast we did relate to Star Trek Picard. Who would have thought I had planted a seed that grew into a really twist-filled vine that would end up being the result in the final act of Star Trek Picard, and assumingly for many episodes to come.
0: How do you know you didn't manifest that?
1: I mean, listen, uh, Star Trek has been known to futz with time in the past. I was going to say chronologically, it wouldn't make much sense, but I could totally yesterday enterprise it and, you know, have a, a random ship come in with Michael Shabon in it from the future asking for ideas, and which case he'd just be overhearing random Star Trek podcasts, intercept ideas from that, hop back into his ship, go back to when this was being developed and just, you know, spurs it in, call it a shout out, call it blatant theft. Either way, I feel honored for it.
0: You know, I'm happy if if it was our contribution to the Star Trek universe. I think I'm satisfied with that.
1: Yeah. And now we can actually say that, yes, this is an evil twin. This is not the weird uh, Rikers situation where it's not really a twin situation. It was more like a, a transporter accident. Unless, you know, there was a transporter accident during the cloning process. These are twins. It's a little soapy, but a lot of fun, and Jess, I cannot wait. We have talked for weeks and weeks at this point and anticipated for months and months what Star Trek Picard was going to be like, and we finally got a first taste of what it was going to be, and it was a lot. In a good way, but it was a lot.
0: Yes, a lot. And spoiler alert, that's not the last time I'm going to be quoting our friend Bryce Isaiah. But before we get to started on all of that, we want to take a moment to thank our sponsors. So this podcast would literally not be possible without support from our friends at Star Trek Picard.
1: Jess, now streaming only on CBS All Access, a legend Returns, And we're not just talking about you and I, Jess. Sir Patrick Stewart reprises his iconic role as Captain Jean-Luc Picard in the highly anticipated original series Star Trek Picard, the sponsors of the Star Trek Picard podcast here on Post Show Recaps. Follow this hero on an unexpected mission as he travels into the far reaches of the galaxy and battles against the odds to fight for what's right. With help from a new crew of complicated, funny, and memorable characters who will not be seen in the premiere episode, but I'm assuming are coming, Picard's boundary-pushing adventure promises to extend the captain's legacy, defying expectations along the way.
0: So Stuart will also be joined by beloved cast members from across the Star Trek universe, including Brent Spiner, Jerry Ryan, and Jonathan Frakes. The journey is about to begin, so you can sign up today for CBS All Access by visiting cbs.com slash post show. That's cbs.com slash post show. Get your first week of CBS All Access for free and stream Star Trek Picard now. And Mike, I'm so excited about Star Trek Picard.
1: I am so happy we've been sponsored by the entity itself. Feels a little, you know, back in the uh, disco season, two days of control, and I think we've learned that, at least in the 24th century, we are not wont to trust technology, at least of the artificial variety. But actually, this ad ties in really nicely, because I'm sure people are creeping in right now, wanting to find out our non-spoilery thoughts on the premiere of Picard, and if they're interested in checking it out, now they have a code to go to CBS All Access if you're in the United States, to be able to stream the premiere. It's only about 45 minutes, lots of uh, callbacks to Next Generation. That is one of them, including the runtime. So now you have a handy dandy code and a discount and a reason not to do that.
0: Yeah, but Mike, I think it's also fair to say that if this is your very first exposure to the Star Trek universe, or the TNG universe in particular, I think you'd do okay with this episode. I don't think there was a lot in here that relied on you to know every chapter and verse of the TNG world.
1: Right. I mean, there certainly were many, many call outs, which we are going to get into as the Uber Trek nerds that we are. And yes, maybe, uh, you're, you know, uh, your novice Trek watcher would see the first scene and be like, I have no idea what the hell is going on. But really, after that first scene, I think they do a good job of really taking both old and new fans by the hand and leading them you know, past these various grapes that are growing. Because yeah, this is a show that is really straddling the past into the future. And we got a little bit filled in in terms of the recent past, but I think... I love this episode for many reasons, and one of them is I think they did a great job of doing service to the legacy of Jean-Luc Picard while simultaneously engaging in the fact that this is a very different world. We're finding him in and sort of reimmersing ourselves in this world, introducing ourselves to some new characters, some of which make it to the end of the episode, some of which don't. But it's a nice look forward. And the fact that it's very reassuring to me, at least, that it's not going to be, OK, 45 minutes of fan service and that's it.
0: Yeah, I think nobody is here for just picking up where we left off at the end of Star Trek Nemesis. I feel like that would not only would it kind of feel like a retread of everything that we saw before that, but it's also kind of doing a disservice to the evolution of TV storytelling. I think we are getting the opportunity now to tell a Star Trek story in a format that's much more how modern television works, and I think that allows you to go deeper and give it a richer story with a longer arc, and this sets up what I think- I mean, I would suspect it might drag a little bit in places, um, especially if we're stretching this story out for 10 episodes, but it puts us in a place where there's a lot of tantalizing questions that were raised that we know we're going to get answered in the near future.
1: It's so interesting because we talked about this in our preview podcast last week, but going in, you know, we had heard a lot of stuff on the press circuit about how, especially compared to Discovery, this is a much slower, more contemplative show by comparison, a bit more philosophical, if you will. But so much happened in this episode. I'm actually pretty surprised, you know, if, if we're, go- we're harkening back to the Star Trek series of that this is not like a two episodes in one hour and a half extravaganza, because they cram so much into 45 minutes. If I had any minor quibbles with this episode, is that it did feel like a bit of an info dump, at times, and we'll certainly get into recapping exactly what they sketched out from the timeline, because they basically filled in and answered a lot of questions that we had had going into this, but they did it at such a rapid pace that it only really took on my until my second viewing for me to like get the entire timeline together. So, in a couple of scenes, it did feel like Picard and another person sit down and they just explain to each other what happened you know, in the past few years to the audience. But that being said, there was enough stuff to move the plot along, and especially from a character perspective, reinvest ourselves in Jean-Luc Picard and who he is at this point to really buoy my interest And I mean, I can imagine in future episodes, especially once this aforementioned crew gets together, maybe it's going to slow down a bit then. But I mean, understandably, you want to start off your new series with a bang. And I feel like they did that here.
0: Yeah, they absolutely did. And I was expecting like since we heard the word contemplative and we heard that it was a slower pace than Discovery, for instance, I was expecting that. I was expecting something kind of ponderous. And this was not that. At the end, when the credits came up, I was like, that's it? Where's the rest of it? I want more. It it just felt so exciting and so fresh that it really felt like by the end of it, it was like no time had passed. Like so much was happening to keep you entertained and engrossed that I think that bodes really well for the rest of the series.
1: Especially as we get more characters involved. It's pretty crazy to think that, you know, this first episode, we have it pretty much revolving around Picard and Dodge, and I guess people are related to Dodge at the end. Uh, But like you said, it really flew by a clip. Now, maybe it's because it benefited from the fact that it was sort of, you know, jumping back and forth between a couple of characters until they came together for the couple of conversations that they did. But I can imagine as we continue to flesh out this ensemble, and that's, you know, this... Pilot, I think, set itself apart from other first episodes, from other Star Trek series in a myriad of ways. One of them being, we did not get a sort of blanket introduction to all the crew members uh, that we're going to see. You and I previewed all these main characters that are coming, but we really only saw three of them. Uh, You know, we saw Picard, we saw Dodge slash Soji, I suppose, and we saw Dr. Jurati And that was it. And unless you throw Data in there as a guest star, you know, we still have half the main characters to introduce and a little bit of Narek at the end as well. So it's weird in that it was so quick paced. But at the same time, I guess, from a longer arc perspective, it's clear they're taking their time and introducing these cast members. So it doesn't feel like so much new information at once, because from an exposition perspective, there was a lot of information already going on there.
0: Yeah, it was almost you get sort of this Ocean's Eleven feel.
1: Like, mm. we're going
0: to one at a time. We're going to bring these people in. And we're going to say, like, this is the person and this is what they do. And here's what their role is going to be. And now they're going to join up. And then we're going to go and collect another person. I guess that's Ocean's Eleven. Or I guess it's also kind of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure.
1: Or the Wizard of Oz.
0: Yeah, Wizard of Oz, too. I guess it's a trope, but it's yeah. also it's it's fresher than previous Star Treks where you go out on the bridge and it's like, "Hi, I'm navigation. Hi, I'm communications." And this gives us an opportunity. I mean, it could feel like I mean, hit me up at the end of episode 3 because I think we're going to talk about this the uh, the one bad review we read of this mentions that they watched the first 3 episodes and it it spends A great deal of time gathering crew members, maybe more than is necessary. But I think it gives us a little time to get to know the people one at a time and see how they relate to everybody and how they fit into the puzzle. And I think that can't be a bad thing, totally.
1: All I have now is the image in my head of Patrick Stewart as Dorothy And I don't know if I want it to leave. You know, I I guess this is a dream that I don't necessarily want to wake up from. Or do I? Do I want Mars to be exploding to wake me up from this nightmare, Jess?
0: I don't know, Mike, but that does lead us very nicely. I mean, perfect segue into the opening scene, which I think we kind of correctly called this. That Data is back, but he's not really back. He's not back back.
1: Right. So let me uh, press your feet to the fire a bit here, Jess. You think this is the only episode we see Brent Spiner in? Considering that both of the scenes, and I guess if you count the B four in the drawer as well, before everything in the that drawer. every, every Spidey elf a, on the shelf. I was going to say that's the newest uh, Trekker Christmas tradition. <laughs> is like, oh, you better not disobey me, or B four in the drawer is going to let me know, and then we're going to have to, <laughs> I don't know, uh, take you out. i will get the sense to turn on you. We'll have our house defense system turn on itself. Uh, But, you know, all the Brent Spiner stuff we saw from the previews were in this episode. Do we think this is a wrap on at least a visualization of Data for the season?
0: Well, I think when we get a little bit further into this episode, there are a couple of moments that suggest to me that it is not. But I don't know. I'm going to say potentially, no, that's not the last we see of Spiner. But maybe it's the last we see of Data, if that makes Mm. any sense to you.
1: Right. And I guess this is also like data in quotations, right? Because this is not really the flesh and blood, and I also use quotations in that data, but more so a representation to Picard of data. And the first one, it's more of a reverie. It's clearly a moment that Picard wants to hold in suspension, and my god, this is just... Dripping with TNG callouts between the refurbished Enterprise D, then playing poker, which was the very last shot of Star Trek: The Next Generation. Uh, obviously, the t Earl Grey hot. Like you could even say the f- the five queens that Data lays down uh, are reference to Q, which might be the only Q reference we get at least in this first season. So, I think if there were people that were Really looking for references to Picard's past, they really got it in this first scene, and it's also a great representation of you know Picard sort of still living in that past. Uh, I think people people on paper would say, oh yeah, you know Picard's living out his fantasies. He's in retirement, working on the vineyard. But I think it's very clear that the past haunts him in many ways, and I, I'm assuming one of them is sort of looking back fondly upon his time on the Enterprise, even if it did end on a bittersweet note in the loss of data.
0: And I think the way that he says, I don't want this game to end, it's almost like everything that happened immediately after that is kind of capital W where it all went wrong.
1: Mm, yeah exactly i guess it all sort of yeah because we we don't know exactly and i also realized uh apparently in doing some research here that you know they came up with a few comic books in the lead up to this and apparently one more after the first episode was released and apparently that's now canon as well considering that uh picard's two little upstairs downstairs as uh, romulan workers were in that comic book i'm gonna have to get my hands on that because i think it 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 tells a bit more about uh, Picard's attempted evacuation of Romulus, but I feel like we still don't know exactly at what stage did he become admiral. Was it specifically for the rescue mission, or was it just that he became admiral but still said, "You know what? I still want to work on the Enterprise. Like this is my baby."
0: Yeah, I mean, we know that he wouldn't be the only person who felt that way. I think, I think Kirk kind of felt that way after he got his promotion. It's like, okay, I, I get to have a better job but i still something is a something about this ship is very special and i want to stay
1: there he lasted what like a third of the way into star trek the motion picture if that before deciding to commandeer the enterprise again
0: yeah it's like maybe when you're an admiral you get to do whatever you want
1: yeah, I suppose that's true. Uh, so I guess we'll, we'll see. I don't know. We'll talk later about, you know, what exactly happened back then. Do you think we're going to see any actual flashbacks to that? Or do you think maybe it's going to be in this weird Picard-esque dreamscape now that we've sort of introduced that as a reoccurring motif?
0: I mean, I have to imagine that's not the last we've seen of the Enterprise. But I also think we're not going to get some, like, sweeping shots of the bridge or anything like that, because that stuff's expensive to shoot.
1: that's true i mean listen they did you know i wouldn't say they spent a pretty penny on it but they did refurbish the enterprise you gotta take it around the block a few times rather than just make it a model that hangs out in picard's little uh museum exhibit
0: yeah yeah well can we talk about that museum exhibit i mean that's kind of jumping around a little bit but that was that was like pure fan service in a single tiny room like who just has a storage locker full of all of their stuff from their one particular job
1: well, it's interesting because uh, I guess you could go with, you know, what he chose and, you know, what that represents for the character, because obviously he has the models of his previous ships, including the Stargazer, which I think carried over from the Enterprise. He still has his big-ass compendium of Shakespeare, which was prevalent in TNG. But of course, the biggest thing and the thing that really lingered on the most was the Captain Picard Day banner, uh, which, you know, I think Picard's bristling against the youth of the ship was a, a recurring theme he himself became a youth at one point in time but he definitely seemed to grow on the concept by the end which i think definitely ties into uh, his re- short relationship with dodge but you know, i guess i could see a thing where if and when picard leads the en- leaves the enterprise to work on this romulan rescue mission that's something he would take for sentimental reasons even if on the surface he disapproves of the day itself
0: I think so. And of course, I, I feel like maybe he kind of came around on the day a little bit by the end. But yeah, yeah, it, it is interesting that that was one of the things that it's still hanging up. Like he didn't even just roll it up and put it in a box. He's got it displayed.
1: Yeah, it would be like, I don't know if you received like a promotion at work, and you got had like a banner that said like, congratulations, Jess, and you sort of like, if you had your own little private room to celebrate, you know, your accomplishments, you sort of hung that up there. So I guess it's a little self-congratulatory as well. But you know what? He earned it.
0: Yeah, you know, I actually did have something like that. Um, oh, that's so nice. Yeah. Before I got married, my co-workers at the job I was in at the time threw me a A shower. It was kind of a surprise shower, and I got to work and hanging up in my cubicle was this beautiful sign that someone had made. It said "Best wishes, Jess." And then they kind of explained that you don't say "Congratulations" like you achieved it because you know it's it's a little bit it's a little bit treating it like it's some kind of thing that you earned when Mm. it's really like two people coming together. So you wish somebody best wishes when they get married, and I thought that's so cool. And I just left it hanging up in my cubicle for like the next year that I worked there.
1: It's also just such a generic message as well. Like, I think if it said happy birthday, you have what? Probably like a two-week window at max to take it down before it just seems very strange. It's almost like a, a weird version of Christmas in that regard. It's just that you celebrate it instead of most of humanity. So I wonder if uh, Picard, do you think Picard kept the banner hanging up? Or do you think he kept it in storage, then took it out specifically for that? Unless his departure happened to just coincide with that year's Captain Picard Day.
0: I think it's probably more that after he left Starfleet, he's like, you know what? Every day is Captain Picard Day now.
1: (laughs) You just imagine him like stealing things from Starfleet. Like, do you (laughs) imagine his study just full of all this Filch Starfleet stuff hanging around?
0: You open up his linen closet, and all of the towels are Starfleet towels. Yeah,
1: exactly, like a bunch. Of, oh, can I get you a Starfleet branded pen? I have about seventy of them.
0: <laughs> you open up the silverware drawer; it's all the stuff he stole from the mess hall.
1: Yeah, I listen. I, I think if Picard is a was a less honorable man, he could definitely do it. Though, to be fair, the the circumstances with which he left Starfleet, uh, I think he personally felt like he was stolen from, morally speaking. So he didn't feel like he needed to steal back.
0: I I think. That incentivizes him to steal back more.
1: (laughs) I guess so, though I think, I don't know, if uh, 70 pens make up for so many Romulan lives lost and also Martian lives lost.
0: That's true. 900 million Romulan lives. You can't steal enough office supplies to compensate for that. So let's, let's talk about this a little bit, where we learn about the particulars of why and how he left Starfleet. I want to talk about this interview that gets set up because, boy, whoever is running things at this TV network or whatever passes for TV in the future... They got to get some better media training here. This was not sensitively handled, in the least.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, it was a very interesting version. I'm glad 60 Minutes apparently still exists in 2399. (laughs) This very much felt like the R. Kelly interview, uh, but just in a very different regard. Because, yeah, I mean, this was gotcha journalism from the get-go. I mean, this person... I mean, it's interesting. It seems like after the events that had Picard removing himself from Starfleet, he sort of salingered it, right? He sort of like kept to himself in this vineyard, refused to answer for interviews. I guess the anniversary of the supernova made him want to speak at it, but they turned out to do a whole bait and switch. As much as he tried to, you know, affirm that that wasn't the case, and that he gets asked what one question about it, and then the person immediately pivots. And it's so interesting, Jess, because I think. It's gonna take me a little bit of time to get introduced to older Patrick Stewart playing Jean-Luc Picard, just because his voice is so different and it's understandable, right? I mean, that that's age and that's you know what 20 years does to a person, but I remember Jean-Luc Picard as having like this brassy baritone voice, which made his his words even more powerful as they rang out through a crowd. And Patrick Stewart's voice now is much. Softer and kinder, and you know, it, it really comes into play with the humanitarian aspect of his personality. As we'll see, like when he talks to Dodge, he does such a good job of talking her off of whatever ledge she's on by just like having the natural caress in his voice. But I, when he was talking in this interview, and he got to a, a certain point, you know, when we start getting into the uh, the millions of lives were at stake, Romulan lives, no lives, and of course the big moment because it was no longer Starfleet. That old Picard voice came out and it not only, you know, uh, served as a new register for Patrick Stewart in that moment, it was also just a great representation of like that old fighting spirit. You know, Picard jokes, uh, when he was able to get the Romulan, uh, evacuation the first time, you know, I can be very persuasive. And this felt like that persuasive Picard coming out again. So I wouldn't say I'm hoping for many other situations that makes Picard very uh, emotionally at his wits end. But if it brings out that old Picard from a timbre perspective in his voice, I I think that would be very interesting.
0: See, Mike, this is why I'm glad I have someone who has acted co-hosting this with me because you're picking up on a lot of things that I don't think I would have thought that deeply about. And you're absolutely right. The choices that Patrick Stewart is making here with his voice are really, really interesting. And I think they kind of save what is otherwise... I'm gonna say not a great written scene. I mm. I really hated the way that this went down with like he comes out and they say, Oh, they said they're not gonna ask you about that. And then he sits down and they immediately ask him about that. And it would just felt very flimsy and like an opportunity to bring us into this world by dumping a whole bunch of information on us like we are watching the news by having him be on the news. It's, it's lazy storytelling is what it is. And I think the performance that you get out of Patrick Stewart here makes it interesting again.
1: Yeah. And to speak further on that, you know, breath is such an interesting part of acting. And usually, again, you know, Patrick Stewart is a Shakespearean actor. Picard is probably the most Shakespearean captain. Usually you fill in your diaphragm with air and you speak on the breath and, and you use that to sort of project. But at least for the first part of this, when we get introduced to Picard on the video, vineyard, it's almost like he speaks at an exhale. Like It almost feels like he's expending all his energy in the first syllable he puts out. And again, I feel like that's a great character choice because that shows what he is. Again, a lot of people would love to retire on a vineyard where they don't have to do any of the watering and they can just walk around with their pit bull all day. But this is something that Picard Never wanted. Remember, we go back to that episode, Family, that we spoke about. And one of the reasons why he he took off immediately is because, you know, this was the life that he was supposed to have, but he never wanted. And now he's almost forced to have it. So at this, you know, while it's idyllic, at first glance, it's almost like a prison for him. And I think he realizes that as we get to the tail end of the episode. But from a a scene structure perspective, I agree. This one is something that I think definitely suffered from the fact that they only aimed for this to be 45 minutes, and they wanted to get out this, you know, everything that happened in the intervening years as quickly as possible, so we understand what happened to Picard. That being said... It's a lot of interesting information, but it literally was these two characters recapping a timeline for us. And you'd have to imagine that ideally it would be done in a more exciting way. Also, was this a live interview? I'm assuming considering Dodge was watching the interview happen, you know, on a TV screen, unless, you know, those two timelines just didn't really coincide immediately with each other. And this is like a, an after the fact type of interview.
0: Yeah, I don't know how much they're going to want to edit that, but it sure (laughs) seems like you don't want to go live with someone who hasn't spoken to the press in like 10 years.
1: I mean, again, the FNN does not seem like it's, uh, it seems like it's more TMZ than it is like CNN at that point. Uh, I can imagine they do like a Homer Simpson and rock bottom on The Simpsons where they just edit the footage (laughs) to make Picard look even worse.
0: Yeah, I, I, the only way it could be worse is if he's grabbing for some candy.
1: <laughs> exactly. Like, could you imagine, like, them being like, "All right, we have to meet to Admiral Picard." You don't understand what happened on that vineyard. What sort of company he keeps? Uh But, but let's talk about. Well, apparently, what happened to Picard, Jess, because this ties immediately in line with what we speculated at the end of our Short Treks podcast about this attack on Mars that happened at the end, the idea of rogue synths, uh, seeing a response from Picard, who was on his own little FNN news feed before FNN inevitably turned on him. And now we get... The story filled in, and it's—I I would say—it's not too dissimilar from what we came up with. But there were some interesting details, particularly the fact that I think we predicted that Picard left Starfleet in disgrace, but it seems more like he left in disgust.
0: Yeah, he seems like he's really mad at the Federation, and he's mad um, that they didn't—they didn't remain true to the ideals that we know them to be true to in the past, and he really feels like they let him down when they halted this evacuation of Romulus.
1: Right. So I'll do a quick little elevator a turbo lift pitch recap here. And just feel free to add details if you feel like I, I missed anything. But essentially we're, you know, adding exposition on top of the exposition filled scene here. So it's like I'm watching
0: FNN again.
1: Yeah, exactly. We're going live now. So basically to recap Supernova hitting Romulus. Uh, Interestingly enough, even though Spock says that the Romulans didn't really care about the idea at first, apparently it... it Picked up on Picard's radar. He decided to convince Starfleet to mount this rescue armada, essentially using about 10,000 ships to ferry 9 million Romulans off the planet. He compares it to Dunkirk. I'm assuming he's referring to like the third remake of Dunkirk that's happened at this point from some relative of Christopher Nolan. Uh, And they were working (laughs) on building this armada on Mars. But somewhere over the course of, you know, planning this evacuation, because I'm assuming it was planned a little while out of when the supernova would hit with the events at the end of children of Mars happened uh, rogue synthetics, which apparently is now like parlance for androids, which is very interesting, but apparently they hacked Mars defense system, essentially wiping out the shipyard and the armada, lighting the stratosphere on fire, and killing over ninety two thousand people. As a result, uh, there was a ban on synthetics, which will tie in later to the episode. But basically, as a result, Starfleet decided to put the kibitz on the Romulan rescue mission. As a result, Picard couldn't get his armada together, and we saw what happened in Romulus being destroyed. And I think Picard felt that Starfleet had slunk from its duties. Uh, It had backed off of things, even though the Romulans were... I don't know if I'd call them the biggest enemy of the Federation, but they were certainly up there on, you know, the Federation's most wanted. They felt like these were still humanoid beings or living beings crying out and help and them not supporting them is a fundamental failure of Starfleet values. So becoming disillusioned with all of this, he decided to formally hang up his pips and take to the vineyard.
0: I think that makes more sense with the Picard that we know, that he couldn't abandon his ideals and so he walked away in disgust rather than Picard screwed something up and got fired for it, which doesn't seem like the Picard we knew. And I think that – I think narratively speaking and based on everything we know about the character, I like this better than what we came up with.
1: Yeah, I agree. Because, you know, it's still blood on his hands. Look, you know, there were Romulans that he probably felt like he could have prevented the death of. Who knows? Maybe he felt like he could have prevented the death of the Martian people as well. You know, maybe he feels like the Roguesins were specifically attacking because they were building the Armada. Maybe that has to do with perhaps a a secret influence that happened to, you know, uh, promote poke the synths that day to, you know, light this whole fuse. But yeah, there's there's a certain amount of anger there as well. And, but it sort of manifested itself in Picard just sort of living with this overwhelming feeling of just malaise. You know, he, he's really just sort of withdrawn into himself. He, he looks listless. He vocalizes that much later on. But I agree. I think looking back on it, it makes more sense. It's really interesting. We didn't talk about this at the end of the Children of Mars, uh, short trek itself, but in viewing it back now, and especially the follow up bad on synths, there are very clear 9 parallels here, Jess, and it's super interesting. Obviously, I think Picard and Alex Kurtzman and Michael Shabon and Patrick Stewart have been very upfront as to how this particular series is inspired by recent events. That event's not so recent, but considering, I think, what it spurred a lot in terms of uh, certain policies... It's a really interesting way to look at that idea of a tragedy and how people respond you know by persecuting certain other some would say people some would say not
0: yeah i I was trying not to go there, but you're right it it's definitely it's unavoidable we have to we have to acknowledge that that's where that's coming from, and I think it's an interesting thought that they're kind of dehumanizing somewhat. Like you just if in the wake of a, a tragedy like that you want someone to blame and you want to be able to say these people are worse than us and they're responsible and they should be punished and they're bad and i think that could have some repercussions that you know somebody who's thinking about it with a level head is going to say hey that's that's not right we can't we can't just let our emotions override everything that we stand for and i think picard is someone who's particularly has this purity of belief and this moral code that is not terribly flexible and so i can see where he would rebel against that
1: well especially because It's assumed, at least if if we're thinking the interview sort of represents the conventional wisdom that Picard decided to leave because of the attack, because, you know, he was, had a crew member who was a synthetic. And so he felt like, Oh, I couldn't trust in that guy. So I realized what have I done with my life? But it was the exact opposite. Picard affirms that he never lost trust in data. And that's going to inform the way he approaches Dodge, especially when he, he finds out about her. But he makes it very clear that he still feels like the ban on synthetic life forms is a mistake. And I think he's someone who also benefits from the fact that obviously he worked with one. Uh, he understands that, you know, the stereotypes quote-unquote against a synthetic life form based on what a gaggle of them do is not a good way to look at a life form in general those tiny little life forms <laughs> uh, if only nice. if only we had brent spiner doing that at least bringing back that fan favorite moment from star trek generations oh uh, my
0: god i i love that uh, i have a rant prepared about this whole synth band thing is is now the time to bring that up yeah absolutely bring it out okay So this, this global ban on synths, I have some, I have some questions because it seems like we had all of these androids with these very smart positronic brains and some of them get hacked and go rogue and cause a lot of trouble. And then it's like, okay, we can't have these anymore. We're done with them. Here's my question, Mike. And this is something, this could happen now in 2020. Because in 2020, and I have to imagine in the 24th century, it is much the same. We are still very much steeped in the Internet of Things. And I cannot imagine that the only super advanced computers out there in the world of the Federation are inside the heads of these synths. There are very advanced computers in everybody's house, in everything they own, all the time. You can have extended conversations with the central computer of a ship. And they're saying we're going to ban the ones that are walking around on two legs because some of them went rogue. That's not going to solve your problem. You still Mm. got your Internet of Things. You know, somebody's food replicator could decide it's going rogue and it can do as much if not more damage. I'm saying, like, they're... They're still going to have the problem of, like, someone's toaster in their kitchen going rogue and destroying everything. So I don't think banning synths is really going to solve anything.
1: Mm, You're talking about, like, the maximum overdrive situation, right? Where essentially anything that has a CPU chip in it is going to rebel against humanity?
0: That is exactly what I'm saying. And you have... You have people doing that now, like you have people's Alexa systems, like ordering massive amounts of things because it overhears them talking. You have it like recording conversations. You have somebody's fridge has a computer in it and the fridge can just decide to like go rogue and spoil all the food and then you eat spoiled food and you get sick you get salmonella you die your fridge just killed you because it's got a positronic brain in it
1: well maybe that's why you know when we go to dodge's apartment and we see that her replicator is just not very uh not very filled with choices. it's really the julia landauer-esque catalog of (laughs) vanilla milkshakes maybe that's sort of the subtle revenge that the ai is getting back at humanity is but just by limiting their food choices
0: or maybe Dodge knows better, and so she didn't get the super advanced replicator. She's like, I can drink vanilla milkshakes for the rest of my life if it means that I don't have to worry about my replicator going rogue on me.
1: Speaking of that, so yeah, let, let's talk about Dodge for a bit before we bring these, these two people together. Because, yeah, I mean, we get introduced to Dodge, and we assumingly say goodbye to Dodge uh, in this episode. She obviously was the big mystery character from the big mystery actress Issa Briones uh that was coming in on this and she essentially becomes like essentially Star Trek Jason Bourne of yeah. here's someone who thinks she's a normal everyday person but then she gets quote unquote triggered and then suddenly turns into a lean mean fighting machine. Even more so than I know that she obviously has Data's quote-unquote DNA in her, but this is far beyond Data's just ability to pick things up and put them down. She is legitimately doing, like, animalistic things to kick the ass of these Romulan assassins.
0: I mean, Dodge is is a cross between Jason Bourne and Sean Young's character in Blade Runner.
1: (laughs) Yes, absolutely. But she is a replicant.
0: Yeah, She's 100% a replicant that doesn't know she's a replicant. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a pity she'll die soon, but then, you know, doesn't everybody?
1: Yeah, I suppose so. Uh, tears of the rain, except it was very sunny that day.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, it was a little overcast and the building looked a little filthy. I think maybe they needed some rain. But yeah, Daj seems to have a pretty good idea of who she is and like what her life is. And I don't think any of that was real. What do you what do you reckon? What do you make of that, Mike?
1: Right. So yeah, the big thing is that it turns out that Dodge is an android. Uh, she is quote unquote Data's daughter. I want to bring that up later because it involves Bruce Maddox and the fact that this is a bit different than Data's previous daughter, which was Lol from the infamous episode, The Offspring from TNG. Oh, don't wind
0: me up about Lol yet. Save that for later.
1: <laughs> Alright, we'll Lol about Lol some later. A Lol Lol right now. But yeah, so you know, when she talks to Picard later on about like, no, 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 I was grew up in Seattle, which uh, I found out on a Screen Crush's Easter Egg video very fun. Uh, apparently someone else who is from seattle or claim they were was ash tyler so i don't know huh. if all of these like mind control programs just have a setting set up no you're from seattle or if Seattle's just this mysterious wasteland at this point in the 24th century but you know she says no i have all these memories you know my dad's a zeobotanist and picard says like the memory is yours but he seems to imply that they're not real and i guess i'll add a question on top of your question, we see at a certain point that Dodge, you know, is still on the run. She has this initial meeting with Picard and then runs off and she FaceTimes her mom. And her mom sort of gives up the goose immediately by being like, oh, you should go see Picard. And then Dodge smartly points out, I never mentioned Picard to you. Do we think her mom was a part of the programming? Is the FaceTiming itself just part of the programming, and the mom was actually real? These are the questions that pop up when you find out that your entire reality is a lie.
0: Hey, I'm just saying, Terminator 2 called, and it wants that scene
1: back. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like, is, is it Maddox impersonating the mom's voice?
0: Yeah, see, I... I don't know. I think this has to be part of the programming. Like, I think she has been implanted with this memory of a mom that they can, like, kind of fake this mom and have the mom say whatever it wants.
1: Mm, interesting. We do see the interface glitch out a bit. I don't know if that was just, like, you know, Dodge roughing it up a bit from all the running she was doing or if that was indeed a representation of the fact that, oh, no, this is a program. This is essentially a holodeck program in real life and the simulation sort of on the fritz. But, I mean, it also... Again, we'll get to the Maddox of it all, but it really just opens up the question as to, like, how much did Maddox control? You know, is this all Maddox? Is the program run uh, awry? But yeah, I would agree that I think... I personally think that everything that happened to Dodge... I don't know, actually. Because one of two things could happen. Either Dodge was left as a baby on the doorstep of this couple in Seattle that brought her up and it was all real. They just weren't her... She just wasn't their biological daughter. Because let's remember that Data had the quote-unquote Android technology to naturally age. So it could be possible that, you know, Dodge aged 20 years or whatever it was naturally because she has that data DNA in her... Or she was created in the current state that she is now, she was just sort of dropped off, set on her life, and programmed with these memories of, okay, you're Dodge, you grew up in Seattle, you're pursuing a a fellowship at the Daystrom Institute.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. The thing that would make me, that would give me a little pause is the fact that she has a sister. And we're going to get to the sister of it all in a minute here. but. There's somebody that can corroborate everything that happened to Dodge. Right. So I think there must be a real mom out there. I think she had to have something resembling a childhood. And I think maybe the mom telling her to go back and talk to Picard, that part has to be deep faked.
1: So, so, yeah, so it can be possible that the mom existed, but the call to mom was intercepted by whatever, whoever, and fabricated to be like, no, you should go back to Picard. But then, of course, this program, again, showing how AI still might be faulty a bit in the 24th century, did not sound the most lifelike, did not pass the Turing test in that moment, but it still was able to, quote-unquote, activate Dodge, right? It Really, very quickly, side-side. it was like, no, 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 close your eyes and concentrate and use your, like, super secret Google Map skills to track where Picard is.
0: Yeah, and then all of a sudden she's, like, pulling up this, like, projecting this giant screen in front of her face. It's like, I don't think... But I don't think humans can do that, like, even in the 24th century.
1: Right. Well, I guess she has this weird sort of, like, interface that I don't know if it's programmed into her eye, Black Mirror style, or if she sort of has it up like a scouter from Dragon Ball Z, but it allows her to essentially do all this stuff. And I was, I was going to say initially, like, oh, my God, how did she get to San Francisco so quickly? But I feel like, Jess, Star Trek is a franchise where the plot hole of how did one person get to another location so quickly is just very easily filled up at all times. Just due to technology,
0: yeah. I mean, technology—that's uh, easy. You can teleport anywhere on the surface of the planet. I think it's pretty instantaneous, which has got to be pretty nice for them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess before we get into that, because I, I want to talk a bit about the Picard and Dodge's first meeting, just because it's so interesting. Especially when you look back, and it's one of these things where, like, it's not deja vu or déjà vu, as yeah. it were, but it's two characters that like see something in each other but they don't know what so it's a really interesting sort of like tango because Picard is someone who's usually in the know with these types of things but even he isn't entirely sure and there's also a really fun exchange with Dodge asking have you ever been to a stranger to yourself and Picard says many many times and that could be a literal reference to something like Lacutus or the inner light where you know he is literally playing somebody else or it could just be like him looking at himself and thinking like i'm I don't recognize the person that I am right now, but at least on the surface, even without knowing their connection, Picard sees a little bit of himself in dodge uh and she sort of sees not necessarily herself in him but at least someone she can confide in even if she has no idea why
0: yeah, this was interestingly done. the idea that they are connected to each other, and they're not sure exactly why yet. That's a hard thing to convey. And I think I really believed it. Yeah. The interaction between the two of them made me want to see more. And I think the idea that she just recognizes him because she had some sort of vision of him. That's a little flimsy, but I'm willing to give it a pass just because. She didn't immediately like roll up knowing everything about him, which I think is a less effective storytelling device.
1: Well, I think it speaks to Dodge and I'm assuming Soji in that these characters seem very instinctual like, Dodge is somebody who, like, had a plan of, like, oh, my God, what did I do? I killed all these Romulans uh, after they killed my boyfriend. Great, I know what I'm going to do now. You know, she ends up staying with Picard, then leaves immediately because she doesn't want to put him in danger. She compares uh, her Jason Bourne moment to, you know, lightning seeking the ground. But I feel like that's lightning that's been in her this entire episode, where she just feels like she's driven by some sort of force that's outside of her where she's not necessarily thinking it through it's just something that goes with her gut even though she realizes that her gut is mechanical uh and maybe it is sort of like a program that's driving her forward and she doesn't even realize it. she's only beginning to awaken to that idea
0: yeah i mean well how much does she realize at any point that she is synthetic like i don't think it's ever clear to me that she comes to that total realization and it's weird that someone who studies it and it's like her whole thing she's going to the daystrom institute it's weird that it doesn't click with her
1: Right. I guess the the big stopping point is like, no, no, I have, you know, uh, I have flesh and blood organs. Uh, you know, Gerardi says that that technology probably wouldn't exist for like another thousand years if they were working at 100% and they're only working at about 10%. So maybe that's sort of the stopping point. It is interesting and maybe a bit convenient that Dodge happened to be accepted to the Daystrom Institute. Maybe that's something we're like, I don't know, maybe Maddox wanted to keep her close or something if he did indeed create her, even though he sort of seems to be on the lam at this point. It just seems very interesting, especially because it seems like Soji, quote unquote, fixes broken people, which seems to allude to me that like she has at least some... History in roboticism, or at least working on creatures like the Borg, or maybe just a doctor. And it was a very weird way to put it. But for all these characters to happen to share the exact same interest, uh, again, it could be a, a thing of programming to keep everyone close with one another. But it, it's a very interesting coincidence.
0: I mean, Mike, if, if you make robots illegal, Only outlaws will have
1: robots. (laughs) Yeah, I guess those are like a broken windows theory uh, when it comes to... Should they break the windows of the Daystrom Institute to make, you know, it really just uh, keep them away at, 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 you know, arm's reach?
0: Maybe so, Mike. But it, it, it sure seems like all they're doing there by banning the synths is just making sure that only the bad people are having the
1: synths. Exactly. Though I will say, you know, to your question about whether or not Dodge actually comes to this conclusion, she does... Ask Picard if she's a "quote unquote" soulless murder machine. So she doesn't come right out and say it. Maybe it's because like "synth" and "synthetic" has almost become like a slur. Like it's some it's, it's a word that's not even said because of what it's affiliated with. I also think it's very interesting where Dodge almost compares being an android to not being real. And you know, Picard responds to that with "You're dear to me in ways you can't understand." He's affirming to her. And he has experience with this in the aforementioned The Measure of a Man episode, also featuring Bruce Maddox, of like, yes, you you know, just because you don't have a real human organs does not deny your humanity. Humanity is much more than physicality. It's a spirituality. And you've had that for years, and you still have that. It's it's a lot to take in. So I guess she sort of talks around the revelation without outright mentioning it.
0: Yeah, I think it was left a little deliberately vague at that point. I think
1: she's not sure what she is. Mm. So what did you think about the whole the whole painting thing? The, you know, the like the Dixon Hill esque case that Picard goes on and the like subsequent revelation five minutes later that, oh, it's Dodge in the painting.
0: Okay. This I think we have to talk about lol for a second here. Mm. Because I I really feel like we have to bring up Lal at some point in this series, even if we haven't brought her up yet. But uh, for the uninitiated or people that haven't watched TNG in a few years, there's an episode of Next Generation where Dana expresses a desire to be a parent. And so he builds an android in his image, and she chooses this human female form, and she goes by Lal. And near the end of the episode... She ends up dying. She ends up like having a hard drive crash that is like catastrophic system failure and she downloads her memories into Data's system. And Data is allegedly stricken with grief over this. And something about this painting called Daughter that was allegedly completed like probably not too long after all of the law went down. It's interesting. This has to be some kind of tribute to to her, even though it's clearly Dodge in the painting.
1: Right. You would imagine that like data isn't just like coming up with a new face and visualizing his daughter. And to that point, I will also say, and I don't know if this is a theory as much as just like an outright confirmation based on timeline that data did not create Dodge and Soji like he created LOL, where he like actually took his positronic brain used it as a template and made this new person for- well he
0: couldn't cuz data blew up we right. saw that happen exactly he, but he it was in pieces he blew right. up
1: but it's not like it's like he made like two secret girls and like hid them away before he died you know it, it's it's very clear that once he died, Bruce Maddox was able to utilize, again, using that, that cloning theory that they talked about. He was able to pull some of Data's essence, assumingly from B4 to create these two girls. And I, my assumption is that in honor of Data, Maddox sort of looked into the recesses of, of his memories, saw this painting and decided to, you know, create uh, their likenesses based off of that.
0: I think that's I think that's fair to say, Mike. Um I can't imagine that we will have something like, Oh yeah, we reconstructed data and here's a new data. I have an alternate theory though. Okay. Um uh, we could have gotten this we could have gotten these cells from B four. Although we think they made it pretty clear like B four was not as good as data. Yeah, which was like- that's why that's why they put him in the drawer. And
1: that was a big, killing a nice little theory that I know us and a lot of the Trek community have beforehand as well of like, okay, so, you know, Brent Spiner could be playing B4 here. How big of a role is B4 going to be playing? B4 has been sidelined. Gerardi basically said, like, yeah, you know what? We got some stuff out of him, but B4 is basically a lemon and is now just sort of window dressing in the drawer at this point.
0: He's defective. Uh, here's my other question, Mike. Do we know what happened to Lore?
1: So, Lore, during the Descent two-parter, which I believe was season six into seven of TNG, Lore is able to take advantage of a dissociated Borg and be able to sort of become king of the Borg. And Descent part two ends with Data taking Lore into the other room to quote-unquote disassemble him. And all we see, we don't see the scene because they probably couldn't afford the parrot trap-esque technology (laughs) that much, but they just had Data walk back out and say, it is done. So from Data's words we believe that was the end of lore, but for all we know, we didn't technically see it. So if they wanted to retcon it in a way that lore got away or lore replaced Data in that moment, it's not illogical.
0: I mean, I've heard that fan theory that when Data walks back out that's not Data.
1: Yeah, that's that's, that's very much like a twilight zone ending right of like, "Oh my god, just he tricked everybody, but it was actually lore the entire time. He's the evil twin."
0: Yeah. And you know how much Star Trek loves its evil twins.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, So that was that was a question like that was the last we saw of lore. I don't think we know for sure that lore is has been grounded to dust at this point. Uh, I think Data is sentimental enough at this point that he could have, like, deactivated him and put him in a closet somewhere. Mm. Uh, I don't know why I keep thinking that Data is going to put his relatives in closets and just leave them there.
1: Right. You would think that—I mean, I guess it's a very, you know, uh, new ground with androids. Do you think he would, like, cremate them? Or do you think it is, like you said, it's more about, like, storage? Because you could technically bring them back to life at any time you wanted.
0: Yeah, or, you know, you could— Keep the you could keep the Android around and just like wipe his hard drive and use it to store your MP3 files.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just use it as like a nice iPod you leave in the junk drawer if your phone runs out of juice.
0: Yeah, or hook it up to your TV and like and like store a bunch of movies on it.
1: Can, can we talk about Maddox for a second while we're talking about like TNG Pass? Because yeah, this I
0: think it is really useful to do a breakdown. Um, I think I think the Maddox thing is something that I don't think. Anybody who was just a casual TNG fan is going to remember Maddox at all. And I think there's probably a lot of people out there that are like, who the hell is Maddox and why do you keep talking about him? Because he got mentioned very briefly in this episode, and we know because we're geeks. But (laughs) Mike, why don't you tell the people where we first saw Maddox?
1: So it goes back to the episode I mentioned before, The Measure of a Man. So Maddox is the Starfleet scientist who goes to the Enterprise and says, hey, Data is this special, being the first ever android in Starfleet, uses this technology from Dr. Noonien Soong, who is now passed. So we can't, you know, appropriate it for ourselves. What I want to do is disassemble data, you know, copy the positronic brain and essentially build a bunch of androids to service Starfleet. It's a huge episode. Uh, You know, it really breaks down this idea. And especially there's a great scene between Guinan and Picard where Guinan brings up this idea of like... If you do this, there could be an army of Datas. Uh, there could be an army of, of androids that are in service to humans. And after the episode, when Data's humanity was proven, it seemed like the two of them were on friendly terms. You know, he was still interested in Data, but there seemed to be no hard feelings to the point where in the episode Data's Day, I believe Data is dictating like a log to Lieutenant Commander Man- Maddox. So it seems like they're on friendly terms, but we assume that Maddox left it at that. Apparently, Jess, after Data died, I think Maddox like reopened Pandora's box here. I think he might have taken the opportunity to be like, Okay, let me see if I can harvest what I once wanted. And the army of Datas thing that Guinan predicted you know, years and years ago ended up coming true. And you'd have to imagine that those rogue synths were part of that army of Datas.
0: So basically... Guinan was right and Maddox was wrong.
1: Yeah, essentially. This is something that Picard and Guinan warned Maddox against years and years ago. I think the allure was still too powerful for him that he decided to move forward with it. He even brought in Jurati out of Starfleet, poached her to have her help on this project, and they started, you know... I don't exactly know how he was doing it, whether he was pulling elements from B4, whether he was using this Neutronic clothing cloning that was being talked about that apparently created Dodge and Soji. But yeah, he was, he was hard at work in creating this army of androids. We don't know how upgraded they were, obviously, because there are no other androids around at this point. But yeah, essentially, Maddox is sort of like the weird you know, uh, invisible villain here right now. And so they said after the Mars attack, he went into hiding. So we don't know. Maddiff could still be bumming around. For all we know, he could have died in disgrace. We're not entirely sure. But he certainly has had his effect on everything between creating the synth that attacked Mars and assumingly creating Dodge and Soji in the image of Data's memories.
0: You have to imagine that that was Chekhov's Maddox, not Pavel Chekhov's Maddox. (laughs) I was going to say Chekhov's Maddox.
1: So do you think then, uh, because I'm trying to, I mean, do you think they would actually bring in the actor for it? Do you think they would like put a guy in old age makeup and have him be, you know, one of these reclusive old man hermits that we see all the time on Star Trek?
0: I don't think they need the original actor, although given what we know of actors coming back to this series. Yeah, hey,
1: Jonathan Del Arco.
0: I'm saying they, they might get the original actor or they might just get some rando and say it's him. I, I think it's, I think it could be either one. Yeah. Um, But I have to imagine that this is not the last mention of Maddox we're going to get. And it's, a virtual guarantee we are going to see him by the end of the season.
1: Yeah, completely agree. Like, definitely planning my flag there, considering that we didn't know what Picard's mission was before the season. I think it's clear that by the end of this, that his goal is that now that he knows that Dodge has a twin sister to find her, and maybe warn her against, you know, the, the people that were hunting down Dodge, which, which I want to talk about next. So you can imagine how seeking out the creator of Dodge and Sophie is still high on the priority list, especially for someone like Gerardi who worked with him. And, you know, I think uh, was probably had a relation, uh, you know, camaraderie with him before he ended up just like getting out of Dodge.
0: I mean, she's a little bit inscrutable when it comes to this. I can't tell how she feels about him.
1: Hmm. I mean, it seemed like she loves her job and I think admired Maddox for what he was able to do. It's interesting to think about because we didn't get too much from Gerardi, right? She she had a couple of like fun, you know, sassy moments in true Allison Pill fashion. But I would be intrigued to get her thoughts on the Mars attack. You know, does she blame herself? Does she take Picard's side of let's, you know, take in AI as a life form rather than just an object? You know, what, what does her work make her believe about synthetics? Because considering she spends, that's her life's work, and she spends day in and day out working with synthetics, you have to imagine she has an opinion about them.
0: Yeah, I mean, all we've gotten so far out of her regarding this is that she's kind of bummed that it set her research back right like, yeah, that, that, yeah it, got it, it all changed our funding. my job yeah lost my funding have to work on some other project and we don't even really know what she's doing at this point uh like is she like building food replicators that can't spoil your food for you i don't know
1: yeah they said that basically all they can do is like essentially virtual stuff like all they can do is run simulations so like I bet you Starfleet just have them chasing their own tails of like, okay, yeah, maybe we'll we'll you know allow sense again. Why don't you start running some simulations with like future updates we can make to synthetics? And so they basically just know they're giving them busy work for a task that's never going to be accomplished.
0: Well, you know, this is a post-currency society. We don't, this is not capitalism here. They don't need funding. It's kind of like you could choose to work or not.
1: Yeah, that's true. Can I also say as well, when we start getting this reveal of the fractal neuronic clothing, that if it, if that symbol on the necklace is indeed the symbol of that idea, that is one of the most basic-ass symbols <laughs> for a concept I think I've ever seen, considering it's just two-fifths of the Olympics. <laughs>
0: Yeah i I don't know why Picard was so taken by that necklace. It's like it looks like something you buy on Wish dot
1: com. Well my my theory, and I saw this uh, banning about online a bit, is that I guess to him it looks retro, right? Like like <laughs> you said, like it's so 21st century dust. But maybe in the, I mean we've seen wear in the 21st century. We've seen locks on a Troy. Like garb can be absolutely outrageous. Maybe just the pure simplicity and minimalism in it just really stuck out to Picard.
0: Maybe he's just got an eye for really good design.
1: <laughs> or just really bare bones design, considering, again, it's just two circles overlapping.
0: Well, I mean, considering, you know, he hangs out with two Romulans all the time who dress like they're they're on Instagram in 2018. <laughs> and you know that Romulans used to wear, like, the, the big foil bag that you take frozen <laughs> meat home from the supermarket with? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's like i i think it just appeals to his a- aesthetic like everybody that hangs out at chateau picard like they wear sweaters and ugg boots and they you know they have the sweater coat with the belt on it and it's it's just kind of it fits into the aesthetic. He's like, you know, that's the kind of necklace that would really go with the sweater coats that my Romulan housekeeper wears.
1: Do you think Do you think he's band the wardrobe or do you think it's more so just like the aesthetic that Robert set out of like no technology? Like you have to dress very, you know, homely and, you know, make sure that uh, you're sticking to the times even though these are not the times.
0: Well, Robert wore like burlap sacks and overalls. (laughs) I don't think Robert is a fashion icon here either. I think Picard moved in and he's like, I'm not going to dress like my brother. I'm gonna bring in I'm gonna bring us into the twenty fourth century here with some like form fitting sweaters. And I think everybody that just gravitates toward this, like you move in, it's like I wanna I wanna embody this aesthetic. I have a replicator, I don't have to spend money on clothing, I can dress however I want.
1: Where did Picard get Daj's necklace? Did it survive this apparent blast, or did she I forget, did she like leave it with him at some point?
0: I think she left it at his house. Maybe. And I think he came back and picked it up off the table.
1: Oh, yeah. You you know what? Now that I think about it, you're probably right. Because I can imagine, and I think the next question we should talk about is the whole, is Dodge dead of it all? But you can imagine that, like, everything around her, assumingly, got vaporized, including jewelry. Unless this is just, like, a super, you know, strong material that really fortifies this idea that these are, you know, two cells splitting off from one piece of DNA.
0: Yeah, I have to think she's dead. That was pretty gross.
1: Yeah, my I I know people would think like, no, they can't kill her off. Did all this advertising with her. But I mean, I think the introduction of Soji narrated 10 minutes later means that, okay, I think we're good with Dodge being the dead one. Uh, because I think, I don't think they they want necessarily Issa Briones to be pulling double duty. It seems like in the this season on super teaser at the end of the episode that it seemed like from a wardrobe perspective, we were seeing a lot more of the Soji variety than the Dodge stuff. So, and I could also imagine them really wanting to again start things off with a bang by killing one of these characters that's been advertised for months at this point, which was pretty shocking. So, I personally subscribe to the camp. Dodge is dead. There are things like, you know, her body was not on the scene. Security footage didn't pick her up. Maybe, you know, the Romulans were the ones, you know, assaulting her. Maybe she was able to cloak at that time and, and just, you know, hide out. But I wouldn't really see a need to keep her alive, which I guess is why I think that she's dead.
0: Well, it's kind of like if you watched the first episode of *Orphan Black* and you thought that this was a TV show about a character named Beth Childs
1: who's a police detective, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. She's she's like the the spark, right? Now it's all going to be about like how, about the involvement of Dodge and almost the memory of Dodge that's going to live on in Soji and Picard, less so than it is going to be about the character of Dodge.
0: Yeah, exactly, and. Mike, can I just say I have some questions about the fact that this cloning process always has to produce two? Yeah. Like, who who decided that? Why, wh- like, why is that?
1: Could it just be a thing about, you know, when you make a recipe, when you make brownies and it's like, oh, I, I have to make too big of a batch just because of the, the ingredients. And so you always like save leftovers. Maybe that's it. Maddox didn't perfect it to like have the most efficient amount of resources. So it always had to produce two people.
0: Yeah, like the the recipe just doesn't work as well if you cut
1: it in half. Exactly. Like, no, no, no. Listen, you're going to want to box up Soji, send her off to a borer cube. Like, she's going to be great tomorrow morning. Trust me.
0: (laughs) I I guess. I, I think this, like, you always have to have two. I think that's kind of a... A pretty deliberate conceit there so that we can have one of them die and the other one still be there
1: so the question about soji is we talked about what dodge may or may not know about her past what does soji know because soji tells narek during this little like meet cute they have in this final scene which i'm sure we'll get into but she says okay this is my necklace my father gave it to me my twin sister has another one I'm assuming Dodge didn't know she had a twin sister. If she did, you'd imagine that she'd be like the first person she calls her FaceTimes, right? To be like, hey, are you experiencing this weird stuff? Because I am. Are you seeing Jean-Luc Picard? So could it be possible, like was Soji raised in a different household? Is this like a Luke and Leia situation where they were split up initially to sort of keep the other one safe in terms of their identity? And Soji just happens to be more in the know. Could she coincidentally be talking about another twin sister that she has? Oh, is it Clone Club now? It, it could be. Yeah, this could be, you know, Orphan uh, Earl Grey.
0: Yeah, I have to imagine that it just didn't come up. We didn't get to see much of Dodge. Like it- they talked for a couple of minutes it's not like she got to unload her whole life story on picard and honestly i wouldn't I, put it
1: past this episode if they did if they had like five minutes more we would have gotten <laughs> her life story
0: this is like the it's like the one scene where they didn't do that yeah, exactly it's it's true but i i think they must have known about each other i think they were raised together i think you wouldn't I feel like if it was a situation where they weren't raised together, it's weird to just bring that up. Oh, well, yeah, my twin sister. She'd have to add more. It would be like they would info dump that. She'd be like, well, you know, my twin sister that doesn't know I exist, but I know she exists, but we weren't raised together together. I, I think that just raises too many questions. I think if she says, my twin sister, we have to take it on face value that they were sisters in the conventional sense that they grew up in the same household.
1: It could be possible that maybe for some reason, Soji was raised by the Romulans. That's why she works with them. And maybe the Romulans, feel they found out information about this whole positronic or this fractal-neutronic cloning and her in on it. In that capacity, could she know She's an android. I talked about this before, Jess, but, you know, Narek makes a bit of a vagary uh, saying that, you know, you, quote unquote, fix broken people. And, you know, apparently she's reputable for her work, at least on this reclamation site. What do you think her career is at this moment?
0: I think she's got to be kind of like the fact that it's on a Borg cube raises a lot of questions, oh, like yeah. a lot, lot of questions. Like that says to me that she's less of a doctor and more of a mechanic. But maybe that's just my oh, limited Oh, Jet, Jet human Reno brain. is like
1: blanching right now when you're trying to compare her to a grease monkey. I would agree. I think that she's <laughs> I would honestly think she's like a Borg doctor. Because we talked about this in our preview, and this final image, you know, I think really confirms it. If the Romulans are trying to rebuild themselves as a galactic superpower by reclaiming Borg technology after the events of Voyager, assumingly wiped out the Borg, you can imagine that there's a lot of stuff in disrepair, and maybe Soji was recruited by the Romulans to sort of be able to bridge the mechanics of the Borg with the humanity that existed with the assimilation idea in general. So like, maybe she's a medical officer, but also I wouldn't say she's a robotics expert like her sister, but someone who definitely knows her way around mechanics.
0: I mean, hey, if Jet Reno can keep a bunch of people alive for months and months by herself without having a medical degree, I think this is like the flip side of that coin.
1: Yeah. That's actually very true. Yeah, it goes back to that that disco episode one thing, right, where she says, uh, "You know, humans are just machines with like, different uh, different gears to them."
0: Yeah, it makes sense, and I think we will know more about this once we get a better sense of what actually happened to the Borg. Because I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Mike. At this point, we don't really know.
1: Right. Again, we we only know I think in the in Voyager when I believe future Janeway I think comes back and like helps wipe them out. But it wasn't like a okay, they're officially gone type of thing uh it could very much be that like even if they were that there would still be borg cubes lingering in space that romulans could very easily pick up and this whole romulan reclamation stuff i'm assuming this is on the dl right like i'm assuming that nobody has any knowledge of what romulans are doing right now considering that i can imagine they're pretty underestimated they're pretty much scattered to the winds at this point considering what happened to their planet
0: well, I think anytime you're tinkering with people in a Borg cube, you're probably going against that whole synth ban thing. So it's got to be on the DL.
1: Yeah, which again, really questions, you know... If Soji, you know, is this a yin-yang thing where if Dodge and Soji do know each other, did Dodge walk the good path of working at the Daystrom Institute and, you know, wanting to be in Starfleet? And Soji, you know, went the evil path of being picked up by the Tal Shiar and is now supporting the Romulans uh, against, you know, the Starfleet's wishes.
0: Are you saying that Soji is the evil twin?
1: I, I, I think the evil twin might have survived her. I think we have our lore right now.
0: Yeah. I Star Trek Universe is lousy with evil twins.
1: Listen, no goatees, though, unfortunately. I guess that's the downside of having uh, female twins, that you can't tell which is which.
0: No, but you got a pretty nice beard on that Romulan.
1: Yeah, and you know, we talked about this, but when I was watching this with Angela, my wife, like, she took a quick look at Narek, and she's like, Spock? And so I think, unfortunately, with this coming right after or at least seeming, you know, uh, soon after season two of Discovery, you can't not get Ethan Peck's bearded Beatles cut Spock out of your head when you see Narek at this moment, even though he has a nice chipper British accent instead of his, you know, drolling American one.
0: Yeah, you know, it's not really the, the beetle cut and the accent... It's a good look for him, but I feel like maybe they should have done a little something to distinguish him from Scruffy Spock.
1: Yeah, and maybe it'll happen in the future. It seems definitely like Neric is going to get more romantically involved than Spock. And this all now makes more sense in the previews when we saw like Nerik romancing what we thought was Dodge. Considering the admiration he has for Soji at this point and the seeming meat cute they had on the Borg cube, this seems like now this whole plot makes more sense. But yeah, hopefully Neric. I don't know, gets a haircut or something. I will also say, if we're putting on a blanket statement for our listeners, Jess, should we assume moving forward, every time we see a pointy ear, 90% of the time it's going to be a Romulan on Star Trek Picard?
0: I think so. And I, I'm going to go back to Children of Mars for a second. I think that was something we were meant to believe when we watched Children of Mars. I think we saw that principle and we thought he was a Vulcan. I think maybe he was
1: supposed to be a Romulan. Yeah, we talked about that. Like This is just a problem with yeah. the ver- the similarities that Ron and Barry came up with just due to the lack of uh, you know uh, wide <laughs> palettes of makeup when it came to differentiating between Vulcans and Romulans. So, yeah, I would assume just considering how prevalent Romulans are. In the plot if we see someone with pointy ears if a helmet falls off an assassin and we close it on his pointy ears like we did in the first episode it's a romulan so we'll just we'll yeah, just well, make that assumption
0: what vulcan is going to be an assassin like that is not a career you undertake if your whole being is governed by
1: logic yeah i was gonna say not very logical for you to put yourself in the in the line of fire so often
0: yeah not not very many not very many Vulcan assassins out there
1: though they'd probably be pretty awesome I mean just considering the neck pinch like that's a very easy thing to, to take out someone
0: that's true well you got to get up close to them
1: yeah that's true but then you have to I guess you have to be like a combination ninja assassin in that regard
0: yeah I I guess <laughs> <laughs> all right Mike so is there is there anything else that we need to touch on for this episode the
1: very last thing I want to talk about is the credit sequence because you actually spoke about this at the beginning of the podcast, Jess, about how I think Star Trek Picard represents, you know, what 20s, 10s storytelling looks like. And the credits is a good representation of that. We are long, long time away from just let's throw names up on a screen while music plays. Uh, this, this was Beautiful to me. And I watched The Ready Room with Will Wheaton from this first week, and I think the most interesting part was the brief little interlude they did with Jeff Russo, the composer, behind creating the theme. He talked about a lot of the visuals behind it. It's just beautiful idea of a broken piece of glass falling down from the sky through the vineyards into a Borg cube, and then eventually reforming Picard's head, essentially saying that this is a guy who came down from space, became earthbound quite literally, and felt broken. And now he's coming back together. And there were so many interesting things about the musical theme as well. The piccolo starts out, which invokes the inner light, and there's just this beautiful cello motif that like, almost made me think about Lord of the Rings, especially with like the nature-based theme of the vineyard as well. But I don't know. It just, it really struck me. I feel like this is definitely a step above the sketch-based credits from Disco, but it really moved me. And obviously in ways that Star Trek credits usually don't.
0: Yeah, I'm going to have to go back and watch that again a few more times because it was really, it was very striking. And I thought the theme song was very memorable in a way. I think we haven't had a really memorable theme song in a while. The disco theme is all right. Well, the Enterprise
1: theme was memorable for a bad reason.
0: The less we say about the Enterprise theme song, the better. (laughs)
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think that maybe TOS has the most recognizable motif to the point that it's been used in a bunch of other stuff. But yeah, this felt... This felt orchestral, even compared to something like disco, and I think it maybe represents the various instruments, Peter and the Wolf style, that's going to get brought in here with all the various personalities. Because it seems like we're going to be meeting the crew in future installments, and I'm very excited about it. And I don't know, like this, the cold open was super interesting, and that that theme just really hooked me. I think it perfectly, visually and sound wise, describes Picard's journey. To this point, and the music itself, is just so well done. So my hat's off completely to Jeff Russo for what he was able to do here.
0: Yeah, and and Mike, I know this is kind of more your wheelhouse than mine, um, especially since I really only got to watch the episode one time. I think I want to go back again and watch it and with really an ear toward how they use those musical cues because I think a lot of those cues are Almost borrowed from TNG in a few places. Right.
1: I know that I, I can't, I don't know if the piccolo actually played like the melody from the end of the inner light. Uh, but that would be, you know, I, I think that Russo obviously, I mean, that's the good thing about this show. Everyone who works on this show was a fan. Of TNG. And so the reverence that they had for Picard, the character and the show, it's felt even in this first episode. And I would imagine that it reflects here as well, where much like Picard, the show itself, it's going to have echoes of those, those past, those, those motifs that we love so much, but it's also going to bring in brand new elements that's really going to liven up this character and this series.
0: I'm still kind of blown away that one of our showrunners is a Pulitzer Prize winning novelist.
1: I know. and it, Listen, we get 10 episodes of him. Uh, so I'm excited to see what Shabon's going to bring because I think, you know, he was one of like five writers on this episode. But I think what they were able to trot out really walked a really fine line very nicely and so i'm really excited that once they sort of i think cast off the shackles of what they feel like they need to provide what they need to satiate for tng fans i'm really excited to see where they go now especially when we assumingly actually get to the stars again
0: yeah i think once we're once we're really immersed in this world once they get us there Where we go from there could be really exciting.
1: Yeah, I am very excited. I'm just excited even next week to get to what's going to be. Because just again, I I will say that as much as we might quibble about the exposition and some of the explanations for things, I thought this was a wallop of a first episode and it really excited me for what's to come and especially getting to to relitigate all this stuff with you because while it did explain a lot it still opens up a lot of questions and especially as we bring in more characters that's going to bring up even more questions and a lot more to explore
0: well there will certainly be no shortage of things to talk about and honestly when it comes to star trek series premieres Bar is kind of low.
1: Yeah, I know that. You know, we we got a question from Lawson Campbell that said, "Is this the strongest premiere of any Trek series?" And yeah, I mean, like you said, it's tough to make any comparisons. I would say so, which saying something considering that a lot of these episodes have twice the length to do this. But yeah, you, the old adage usually is that the first seasons to first couple seasons of any old Trek series are not the best. And so to see Picard really come right out of the gate, I think it makes it the default number 1, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean it, it's it's definitely it's as number 1 as the pitbull by Picard's side. Aww.
1: I think we might see a wrap on number 1 soon depending on how soon Picard ends up getting in that ship.
0: He's not going to bring the dog with him or is he going to say that's like too derivative of Archer?
1: No, I think it could be a thing where he's uh, he also goes like, hey, you know, take care of these guys, you know, look after the vineyard. Uh, And I think Picard could legitimately leave the dog in in charge of the vineyard with these poor Romulans having to, you know, service the dog.
0: Did you get any get out vibes when you saw the Romulans?
1: (laughs) Could it be that these are these are actually the crew members from the Enterprise that were transplanted into the Romulans minds?
0: yeah it just seemed like i I mean maybe jordan peele just ruined the concept of having like a married couple as you live in help
1: well listen he's already working on cbs all access properties in the twilight zone maybe he took a step into picard for a second to create the ultimate twist of all that picard's the big manipulator and he's the one that's been utilizing all these romulan refugees
0: yeah i mean it's it's making that synth business look pretty okay now yeah
1: exactly picard's the real monster here starfleet was right
0: yeah, well, and, and and we were right because we said, well, maybe he screwed up and had and got fired from Starfleet.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's going to be the big twist, right? As they reveal the security footage, like they did in Disco Season Two, of like what happened during <laughs> Picard's pink slip meeting, and it turns out what he actually did was far worse than anything we could have thought.
0: Oh man, it's it's he it becomes the uh, Walter White esque anti-hero. It's <laughs> what a turn Picard is taking. He's got
1: the hair for it, so
0: he certainly does. You're goddamn right, Mike.
1: <laughs> well, listen, you can't knock on any doors in uh, Star Trek, so unfortunately he can't make that sort of phrase come to life.
0: You could just chime it, and then the come. doors go
1: whoosh. <laughs> yeah. I hope he does that at least once.
0: Of course he he will. He's he's going to do all the things at least once, and they're going to have like a little modern spin on them, just like the tea Earl Grey
1: decaf. Yeah, you're getting older. Don't need that much caffeine, or else he'd be up until like 11 o'clock at night wired about that interview.
0: Yeah, but you know, he's got an artificial heart. He can have all the caffeine he
1: wants. You can imagine so and just put flying Pulaski again to do another replacement if need be.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're we're in the era of you can have entire artificial beings. You can have all the artificial hearts you want. Yeah,
1: but do you want that heart to attack?
0: (laughs) What if the heart goes wrong? See, this is what I'm saying. Internet of Things. A
1: literal heart attack.
0: Oh, oh, I like it. I like it. (laughs) Man, Michael Shabon's going to start calling us.
1: I know. Well, listen, he already took an idea from us, apparently. So he took an idea from one of our podcast openings. Now he'll take one from one of our closings, and it comes full circle.
0: One would hope. All right, Mike. I think I think we're ready to wrap this up and <laughs> stick it in the drawer.
1: <laughs> with B4. Make some company for him. But yeah, this is so much fun to break this down with you. I'm really excited to see where we go over the course of the next nine episodes. because There's certainly going to be a lot to talk about between... Easter eggs and new stuff to look forward to. So I'm happy to be alongside you here, Jess. I guess we're the two podcast twins uh, on this show, even though we're both aware of each other's consciousnesses, whereas we're not entirely sure if that was the case with Dodge and Soji at this point.
0: Yeah, and we're both the good twins. Yes,
1: clearly. exactly. There are no, no bad twin, no Gary Troop here before he gets sucked into a propeller engine like in Lost.
0: <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. Well, speaking of Lost, I, I understand you have plenty... Of things to say about Lost with the record for longest podcast ever dropped on post-show recaps recently. Yeah,
1: a little over five hours talking about one of my favorite episodes of television of all time, Exodus, the three-part finale of Lost Season 1. I also got together with Josh Wiggler this week as he was back from his own trip to Japan. He did not visit the Daystrom Institute in Okinawa, but we basically went through some feedback that listeners sent in about Season 1, especially the latter batch. We gave our overall thoughts on Season 1, and looked ahead to season two, which is a very interesting season of the show so be sure to check that out down the hatch here on post show recaps also from a picard perspective uh, i am actually covering picard for comic book resources if you want to check that out go to cbr.com slash tag slash picard i'm writing up episodic recaps so i have one up right now about the premiere in case you want to hear me wax profound about this episode some more and i also wrote up a little bit of a piece about what this episode showed about the uh world of androids and what exactly has changed between the synth attack, between what Maddox has done, and between Data apparently uh, continuing his family tree, even if he doesn't necessarily play a part in it to his own volition. So be sure to check all that out. I'll be sure to put out a couple of articles every week about Picard as the season keeps on humming along. And you can check out all the stuff I'm doing outside of uh, reality TV stuff including uh, including some reality TV stuff with Survivor coming around the corner on my Twitter account at a mike bloom type
0: that's a lot of stuff mike it, you're the hardest working man in podcast it's a
1: lot it's it's as much as the material that came out of uh of picard here i basically sat down for an fnn interview j- Jess, where i basically just gave out all my plugs it's been five minutes relitigating everything
0: Well, you make my job easy. Uh, I personally have done one piece of writing about Picard. I think that's probably all the writing I'm going to do. But if you go over to primetimer.com, click on features, you can find the article that I wrote, uh, basically summarizing 10 episodes of Star Trek, the next generation that you could watch to get yourself hyped up for Picard. That was a lot of fun to write, especially since Mike and I did most of the work with our Picard Canon catch up. And if you want to, Go back and listen to all of our preseason coverage and get ready for all of our subsequent coverage of Picard. You can sub- you can subscribe to our Star Trek-only podcast feed at com slash Star Trek, and all of the podcatchers of your choice will be able to pick that up, and you can have us in your earbuds automatically. Uh, depending on your preference. And you can find us on Twitter. Mike is at a Mike Bloom type. I'm at Haymaker Hattie. And we want to hear all of your feedback about Star Trek. And I'm already discovering this is maybe the most challenging and most gratifying podcasting that I've ever done. Because I feel like I am being held to a much higher standard. I don't know about you, Mike, but I I think we have to really be on our toes for this. We have to know our stuff. And I've been doing a lot of preparation ahead of every episode and a lot of homework to make sure that I don't sound like a complete idiot because I know how vast the Star Trek universe is and I know how devoted the fans are. So hopefully – We are doing an okay job of embracing both the casuals and the diehards.
1: Yes, how vast or how vosh the universe is. But yeah, (laughs) on that note, you know, I think put out a blanket, mea culpa. If we do get some things wrong, uh, we always appreciate feedback and corrections. Just just don't be a-holes. Uh, online, you know, we we appreciate that, but we also appreciate the feedback as well. And we're usually probably going to be recording these Friday nights, uh, so if you, it's a bit a bit of a quick turnaround from the episodes launching Thursday mornings. But if you do have thoughts, feel free to to send them our way, and we can address them a bit or you know take them into consideration for feedback. But I mean, this is also the most excited people have been for Star Trek in quite some time, and so hopefully we can have a nice little bubble of conversation going, especially as the weekend you know extends and we we get into future episodes uh we only have nine weeks left but only seems like so much considering how much they were able to pack into one episode i can't imagine where we go even at the end of three episodes jess
0: yeah i i can't either mike but i have to say that the enthusiasm and excitement that we got that we felt uh just based on our preseason coverage and that people have been tweeting at us how they can't wait for this to drop and they can't wait to hear what we think about it that's really exciting it yeah. makes me more excited about it and so i'm having a great time so far and i hope that all of the rest of you all are too so we want to hear about it we want to hear your feedback we want to hear your corrections we want to hear all of it so and we hope that we will hear from you again next week and you will certainly hear from us uh so thank you all for listening and we'll see you next week